Turn to Hebrews, please, chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, start reading in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Came him for whom are all things, and by whom all things, in the beginning, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captive of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto thy brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took of the same, that death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this night for your word. We thank you that we can come together to study it together here tonight. And we do pray that, Father, you would just allow our attentions to be turned to you this evening. Even though it's warm, may we be attentive. May we, Father God, have our hearts uh, moved by you, our thoughts turned to you. And we pray, Father God, tonight that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that you give me wisdom, Father God, as always, to be able to take your word and share your word in a way that is understandable. In a way, Father God, that the youngest to the oldest might glean something from it. Father, each and every one of us tonight might leave this place having known that we've been in your presence, having known that you've spoken to us through your word, being able to say, hallelujah, what a savior. Lord, give us wisdom tonight as we take time to look in your word. and Guide me tonight that I would have wisdom, Father God, in what I say. That it might be a blessing to all who hear it. We'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas is almost here again. And I'm sure every one of us are well aware of the fact that it's just around the corner, uh, not that far away at all. But you know, on that very first Christmas, the earth was oblivious to all that was happening. There was no grand expectation, no grand excitement on that first Christmas day. Mankind was unaware of what was about to unfold in Bethlehem of Judea. On the other hand, 
cannot say that heaven was oblivious to what was going on. In fact, in heaven, heaven was well aware of the unfolding events. The angels were waiting with eager anticipation to break forth in praise, to, with worship and adoration at the birth of Jesus Christ. So much so that when they did come, they declared, Fear not, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And that is why Christ came. This is the foremost in his mind. For he knew that he came, uh, that when he came, he came to die. He knew that he was born to die. You know, the important issue of Christmas is not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. There was no salvation in his birth. His sinless life in and of itself did not provide any redemptive force. His example, as flawless as it was, could never rescue men from the slavery of sin. His teachings, the greatest truths of wisdom and truth ever revealed to man could never save us from our sins. There was a problem. It's spelled in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. There was a price for our sin. And it was only Jesus Christ who could pay that price for you and I. The ultimate purpose in the coming of Jesus Christ to earth was that he might die. That's why John the Baptist, on seeing him in John chapter 1 and verse 29, said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This is the side of the Christmas story that the world chooses to ignore. As we think about that, those tiny hands and feet of the babe in the manger, you and I need to remember that one day nails will be driven through those hands and those feet, affixing them to the cross on Golgotha's hill. When we think of the warm and soft little body of that babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, we need to remember that one day he would have a spear thrust through his side and he would die across human eyes. See, Jesus Christ was born to die. And you not need to remember that in the shadow of the manger was the cross. So look forward to Christmas. And with the message that I have between now and Christmas, I want to take various passages of the Bible and just talk about some aspects of the Christmas story leading up to Christmas Day when we'll preach the Christmas story. And so as we look forward to Christmas, I want you to note with me here in Hebrews chapter 2, five reasons why Jesus was born to die. The fact is his death was not a tragedy. His death was purposeful. Jesus Christ came, he was born to die for you and for me, and for that reason, his death was not a tragedy, but five reasons are given here in Hebrews for his death. First of all, Jesus Christ was born to die, and because of that, he became our substitute. Verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. 
You know, Jesus Christ's incarnation, according to verse 9 here, was made a little lower than the angels. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus Christ became less than God. Because Jesus Christ always was God and always will be God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was God in eternity past. He's going to be God in eternity future. And he was God the whole time he was here on earth. While he lived on earth and Jesus became a man, he did not cease to be God. He was the perfect God-man. So in what sense was Jesus made a little lower than the angels? Verse 9 tells us, but it says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. You see, angels, while they're not eternal, they were created, they do not die. Death is reserved for mankind. You and I die because God wanted to save us. In order for God to solve the problem of Adam and sin in the Garden of Eden, God had to allow death to reign so that he could save you and I. In order for Jesus Christ to be our Savior, then in order for him to fulfill the responsibility that God sent him for, then when he became fully man, or rather he had to become fully man so that he could be subject to death. It's in this sense that he was made a little lower than the angels so that he could die for us. Now, as it goes on, it says this in verse 9. It says, made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. He by the grace of God might taste death for every man. You know, the writer is saying that Jesus Christ became our substitute by dying in our place. He was made a little lower than the angels, and ultimately he is going to be glorified. He's going to be crowned with glory and honor but he was made a little lower than the angels so that he could die in our place, so he could taste death on our behalf, so that by the grace of God, he could indeed die in our place upon the cross of Calvary. He came to die. Jesus Christ was born to die. And this is the marvel of the Christmas story, that Christ was born to die. Now notice it says here that he was made alone, the angels, for the suffering of death. It tells us that he suffered death. The word suffer there is the word affliction. It means the word pain. In other words, Jesus did not die simply and easily, but he died in suffering and pain and anguish in affliction upon the cross of Calvary. And death here is represented as something bitter and unpalatable, something unpleasant, an object, uh, 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 as an object may be to the taste. He tasted death. He tasted that which was bitter. He tasted that which was sour. He tasted that which was awful. He tasted death for you and I. He suffered in our place. There were taste here in verse 9 where it says that by the grace of God should taste death for every man. The word taste, taste means to eat, to partake of. 
Jesus Christ partook of death for you and for me. Jesus' death was an excruciatingly painful death. He could have called 10,000 angels to deliver him before he got to Calvary. He could have called 10,000 angels to deliver him from the cross, but he didn't. For if he had, there would have been no salvation for you and for me. But Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, willingly and voluntarily suffered death. He willingly and voluntarily left heaven's glory, became a little lower than the angels, and suffered death for you and I, so by the grace of God, he might taste death for every man, so that you and I might taste grace, because he tasted death. That you and I might experience the grace of God, because he experienced the taste of death for you and for me. He suffered death as payment for the penalty of our sin. On the cross, God received the full expression of God's wrath against mankind. The wrath of God fell upon the Son of God at the cross of Calvary, and he suffered as he tasted death for you and I. He suffered the anguish and the agony of Calvary because he was born to die. You know, the only reason we have death in the world is because of sin. And Jesus Christ, however, was born, when he was born, he was born without sin. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin. So the one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the rights of God in him. We are the sinners. We incurred the debts, but he paid the price. He fully paid for our debts. He became a man. He became our substitutes. He was born to die so that you, might, you and I might be saved. He became our substitutes when he came to earth. Secondly, we see that Jesus Christ coming to earth to die upon the cross of Calvary. He was born to die so that he could pioneer our salvation. In verse 10, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It says it became him. You know, not only was it necessary, but it was fitting that God who created all things, who made all things for his glory, should also provide salvation for creation. That's what it says there. For it became him, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, that in order to bring sons unto glory, that he should die in our place. It's fitting. It's not only necessary, but it was fitting. It was, it was appropriate. It's, it's the logical thing that the God who created us should also be the God who should die for us. The word captain here in verse 10 where it says to make the captain of their salvation pick through suffering. The word captain is the author. He's the leader. First, is someone who starts something for others to follow. Darren mentioned this morning in Hebrews 12, it says that he is the author and finisher. He's the author of our salvation. That's this word captain. 
He's the one who brought it to pass. He's the one who initiated it. He brought it into being. So in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, Jesus is the one who leads the way in bringing many sons to glory. It became him. It was not only necessary, but it was fitting for him, whom by all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, that he should be the author of our salvation. It's fitting. You know, John chapter 14, verse 6, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but by me. Only one way leads to heaven. Only one way leads to the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, and verse 12, it says, Neither is there salvation other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's the only means of salvation. Now, conceivably, God could have engineered a way to save us that did not require the suffering of the Son of God. He's God. God could have come up with a different way of saving us. But God set the price, didn't he? God said that the wages of sin is death. He told Adam and Eve that before they sinned. He said, of all the trees of the garden, they may as freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of a uh, uh, tree of knowledge uh, and the tree of life, a tree of life in the garden, thou and I was not allowed to eat thereof. From the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God told them before they sinned that the consequence of disobedience was that they would die. This is the price for sin. So God set the price that death was the means of payment for sin. And so it was fitting for Jesus to save us at the cost of his agony upon the cross. God's love for us had to show itself in sacrifice. And that sacrifice was Christ. God says it was fitting. It became him. It was the obvious thing that his son should die for us. Hebrews 2.10 goes on to say that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That is to render him fully qualified for his work so that he could be a savior suitable to redeem mankind. Now, this does not mean, when it says that he's made perfect through sufferings, it does not mean that he was sinful before his sufferings and he was made holy by his sufferings. It doesn't mean that. Nor does it mean that he was not in all respects perfect, a perfect man before his sufferings, but somehow that the sufferings made him a perfect man. But what it means is this, that his sufferings, but by his sufferings, he was made wholly suited to be the Savior. You know, Christ was not made better by his sufferings because he was perfectly holy. But he was rendered complete or fully qualified to be Savior by his sufferings. The suffering of Christ upon the cross of Calvary 
demonstrated to you and I that he was indeed means by which you could be saved. His sufferings demonstrated the completeness of his sacrifice. And therefore the father could say in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You see, God bruised the Son because God knew that the Son was qualified to die for you and I. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was perfect in every way. He was fully God. He was fully man, and yet he was without sin. He was the spotless Lamb of God who could go to the cross of Calvary, and he could die upon the cross of Calvary. Therefore, it pleased the Father to bruise him because it was the logical thing to do. It was the only thing to do. If God was going to save the creature that he loved, his creation, you and me, the only logical way to save us was to bruise the Son, and the Son was completely sufficient as sacrifice for our sins. And his death proved it to be so. Death for sin was the requirement Christ was qualified to die for us. He was born to die so we might be saved. Thirdly, Jesus Christ was born to die so that he might sanctify his people. So that he might sanctify his people. Verse 11 to 13. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So I declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God hath given me. Jesus is holy. And he makes all those who trust him holy too. So he says in verse 11, For both he that sanctifieth, and they that are sanctified are all of one. You and I have been sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. When you and I trust Jesus Christ, our Savior, we were set apart under God. We were sanctified. He declared you and I to be holy. You know, the greatest theological dilemma of all time was a result of the cross. And that dilemma was this, how does a holy God enter a relationship with the unholy? How can a holy God have a relationship with you and me? How can a holy God have a relationship with sinners? How can a holy God enter into a relationship with the unholy? You see, God loves sinners like you and I. And God doesn't want to punish you and I. In fact, he created hell for the devil and his angels. He doesn't want to punish you and I. He is not willing that any should perish. He loves us. But if he simply accepted us as we are, and he ignored our sin, his own holiness would have been tainted. See, God is all holy. God is just. And therefore, God must punish sin. In order for God to be God, he must punish sin. He can't let sin go unnoticed. He can't let sin go unpunished. God had declared in the beginning 
than the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This is the consequence for sin. You shall surely die. And God cannot therefore overlook that sin. He cannot turn his back upon his declaration and say, well, it didn't really mean it. It didn't really matter. I didn't mean you die, which is what the devil tried to tell Adam and Eve. He said, you know, if God knows in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt not surely die. But God's a man of his word. God's a God of his word. When God said they shall surely die, that's the consequence. The wage of sin is death. And for God to be God, for God to be holy, God must judge sin. So on one hand, God loved us and doesn't want you and I to go to hell and doesn't want you and I to be separated from him for eternity. But on the other hand, God is holy and God must judge sin and God cannot allow a sin to go unpunished and unjudged and the wage of sin is death. This is the dilemma of, the, of eternity, so to speak. God resolved this dilemma by Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ took our punishment upon himself, upon the cross of Calvary, when he who knew no sin became sin for us, in that day, God resolved the dilemma. God brought love and justice together at the cross and in so doing satisfied the demands of both. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. We're all brought together as one because of Calvary. And in verses 12 and 13, the writer cites three evidences of the fact that Jesus the Messiah wanted to call his people his brethren. And he quotes from Psalm 22 and he quotes from Isaiah 8 and he gives to us three evidences of this desire of God to have fellowship with his people, to call his people his brethren. Look at verse 12. Saying, I declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children of God, which God hath given me. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. He'll declare it in the midst of the congregation. He'll declare that I will put my trust in him, I will declare again, behold, I and the children of God hath given me. And whether it be in the congregation of worship or a community of trust in the Father or declaring a common family association, God the Son desires to call people his brethren. He loves to call them his brethren. He loves to testify the fact that they are his brethren. That's why the writer makes a remarkable statement in reference to those who have been saved by Jesus Christ back in verse 11. He says, For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's a glorious statement. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Because of Calvary, because this one who was born at Christmas time was born to die, 
He has died in our place. He became, knew no sin, became sin for us, so that you and I might be sanctified, so you and I might be declared holy before a holy God. And now Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you and I brethren. We're his brethren. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're saved by Jesus. He makes us part of his family. But as many as received him, then gave you power to become sons of God. And the glorious truth is that he delights to call us brethren. I wonder how often do we find ourselves ashamed to say that we belong to Jesus. Well, let me ask you a question. Who should be more ashamed of each other in this relationship? Should we be ashamed of Jesus, the Holy Son of God who left heaven's glory, who became a man and dwelt amongst men and died upon the cross of Calvary as the perfect sacrifice for you and I, who by in him you and I can be saved? Should we be ashamed of him? Should we be embarrassed of him or... Should he be embarrassed of us? In this relationship, he has more reason to be embarrassed at calling us his brethren than we have in calling us him, our Savior. And yet he is not embarrassed. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. But how often we are ashamed to call him our Savior. We can praise God today that Jesus was born to die so that we might be called his brethren fourthly Jesus was born to die so that he could conquer Satan look at verses 14 to 16 for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now, verse 14 is remarkable, particularly the end of the verse. For there we read that Satan holds the power of death, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. It's a remarkable thought to think that Satan holds the power of death. You see, Satan's great aim in this world is to keep people from being saved. Great desire, his great plan is to keep every person under his control, to keep every man, woman, child in slavery to sin so that he can ensure that they die without Christ in their sins and therefore they spend eternity separated from God. That's Satan's agenda. But Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy Satan and death. That's verse 14 tells us that, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3.8, for this was... The Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
And because Jesus Christ left heaven's glory and became a babe born in Bethlehem of Judea, lived amongst men and died on the cross of Calvary as the perfect sacrifice for you and I, the Apostle Paul could write in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was victorious. That's what Jesus came to do. He came, he was born to die. For it says in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that's you and I are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took of the same, he took of flesh and blood. Why? So that he might die to destroy Satan. He became a man to destroy Satan and death for you and I. Then we read in verse 15, And delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, the fear of death rules as a tyrant over humanity. There's one thing that humanity fears the most, it's death. I mean, you listen to all the ads of the anti-aging cream and anti-aging this, the anti-aging that, and through the centuries there's been those who've sold off bottles of stuff that give long life and, you know, and, uh, and potions to extend life and doctors are trying their best to find solutions to halt the aging process People just don't want to die. Some people try to make peace with death by calling death their friend. But you know, those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior have no fear of death, although we may perhaps have a fear of dying. We don't have a fear of death. There is a difference. You know, uh, we probably none of us want to die an excruciating death. We probably aren't looking forward to a death that is miserable. But death has lost its sting. Eternity waits for all of us. Not because death is our friend, but because it's been defeated. It's a defeated enemy. It's a defeated foe. Death has been swallowed up in victory, beloved. Now note, the Father's work in Jesus was not for the sake of angels. That's for people of faith in verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He didn't become an angel. He became a man. Angels can't die. We do die. We need a Savior. That's why we die. So we can be saved. Jesus Christ became the second Adam and he died in our place upon the cross of Calvary to win the victory over death and hell and Satan so that you and I could have eternal life. He became a man just like you and I. And for the sake of you and I, the seed of Abraham, people of faith. Jesus came to free those who are held in slavery by the fear of death. His, he did this by dying for us because you see, Jesus Christ was born to die. He was born to set us free from death and the devil. 
And then lastly, he was born to die so that he could become our high priest, verses 17 and 18. Therefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might by a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people for in that he hath himself suffered being tempted he is able to succor that are tempted. You know this is one of the most remarkable passages in all of scripture. In order to fully and completely represent you and I to the Father in heaven. Jesus Christ became like us in every way possible except for sin. He was made like us in every way so that he could understand us. He could understand our struggles. He could understand our difficulties. He came and was like you and I. Basically, he said, here I am alongside you. I have experienced the same suffering as you have. I know what it's like. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He was made like unto us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he hath he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them to that are tempted. Because Jesus suffered, he knows exactly what we go through when we suffer. You know, if Jesus were not like us, then he could not be our high priest. The high priest was chosen from out of the nation of Israel. He was one of them. And if Jesus Christ was not like us, then he could not be our high priest, representing us before God and making atonement, propitiation for us and for our sins. And you and I need to realize that neither the deity nor the humanity of Jesus is negotiable. He's fully God, he's fully man, and he became a man so that he might be a merciful high priest. Verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, like unto us. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. He was made like you and I so that he could be our high priest. Pertaining to the things pertaining to God so that he could make reconciliation for us to God. He was a God-man. So he could die in our place. If we diminish either, he is unable to save us. If we diminish his deity, he can't save us. If we diminish his humanity, he cannot save us. He must be the divine God-man to save us. You know, it's interesting, the high priest wore a breastplate that had stones engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel upon his chest. And he wore upon his shoulders little plates that bore the names of the tribes of Israel. The high priest, therefore, would be ever reminded of the fact that he was in constant sympathy with the people of God, carrying them in his heart. 
and carrying them upon his shoulders. One commentator said Jesus did not wear the high priest's breastplate, but the wound in his chest and the cross on his shoulders are even more eloquent testimony to his heart for us and work on our behalf to make propitiation for us. Because Jesus added humanity to his deity, he has experienced human suffering. And therefore, Jesus is able to aid those who are tempted and those who are suffering. He really does know what we're going through. It's astonishing. You know, there's a God in heaven right now who by experience knows what I'm going through. Think about that. There's a God in heaven right now who knows by experience what you and I are going through. And therefore, it can aid us and not just feel bad for us. God can't just empathize with us. God can indeed sympathize with us. God knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tried. He knows what it's like to suffer. Because he became the God-man. It's in that sense that he's able to represent us to the Father as our sympathetic high priest. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And this was made possible because he was born to die. You know, Jesus' death was not a tragedy because ultimately he was born to die. That's why he came. That first Christmas, 2,000 years ago, that babe in that manger was born for this very purpose, to die. That through his death, Jesus might become our substitute. Through his death, Jesus might pioneer our salvation. That through his death, Jesus might sanctify his people. That through his death, Jesus might conquer Satan. And that through his death, Jesus might become our sympathetic high priest. Let's rejoice this Christmas that Jesus was born to die for sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Father, that our Savior came and was born to die. That his death was not pointless. That his birth was not exercised in futility. But the Father, when he left heaven's glory, he came with a purpose and that purpose was to become a man, to live amongst men a perfect life. And then as the perfect sacrifice, go to the cross of Calvary and die upon that cross that we might be saved. And may we rejoice tonight in the fact that he was born to die. Bless now we pray at the close of the hymn in Jesus' name. Amen.